Father, as we come to this text this morning, I feel much like Paul at the end of Romans 11, where he declares, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Father, this passage is from You through Your Son and the Spirit. It is through Christ. This is for You that you might make known to us the glory of your Son, that you might receive glory. So, Father, though this passage is in some ways beyond our grasp, you have lisped to us, you have whispered to us that we might understand enough of this great truth, this heavenly reality. And so I ask that your Spirit would help us to comprehend it, to understand, to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in John chapter 1. We were there on Sunday, and we started this passage. And today we're going to finish it. Beginning in verse 9, we'll do what we did on Sunday. But the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God bless the reading of His Word this this evening. I lose track of time, apparently. Verse 14 here, I think, really answers the question that we kind of arose on Sunday when we were thinking about verse 9. The reality that the true light, the Word of God, the Word who was God, was coming into the world, but John didn't say yet why or how, not why, but how. Verse 14 gets to that how question. Now, the passages that we've had read earlier this evening have focused on sort of the details of the how. This is more the the meta picture, the scene behind the scenes that lets us know what was going on to a greater depth. Not the details about the census and having to go to Bethlehem and there being no room in the home for the family and then having to be out in the stable. This goes deeper, farther, greater. That we might understand who it is that was born in that stable. Who it was that laid in that manger. 
What was their identity? Because John wants us to know who this was. For him, that was more important than the how he was born. That is the one in whom we are called to believe. And we have to get this right. It is perilous if we get this wrong. So let us pay attention to what the Scriptures say to us this evening. The first thing that the Scriptures say to us this evening is that the Word was God and became flesh. You see, the Word remained God. This is not about the Word ceasing to be God as if that was even possible. It is not about the Word never being God, as some have believed throughout church history. But the one who was declared to be with God and also God is about to do something amazing. He says that the Word became flesh. Now there's something there in that verb I'm not going to get all Greeky on you, so don't worry. Okay? But it, it's, for those of you who know, it's, it's a middle, which means it's reflexive. And so the idea that John is trying to communicate to us is that the Word Himself became. He did this to Himself in becoming flesh. No one did this to Him. It was not something that was forced upon Him in any way. But it was something that He, in His own wisdom and counsel with his father, decided to do. He did not just take a body. There's a Greek word for that, soma. He didn't take a body, but John says he became flesh. Took to himself a complete human nature. It wasn't just that there was a body hanging around and God just dropped into it and started to use it, so to speak, but... He took to himself a full humanity with the exception of one thing, and that thing is sin. And so Jesus knew what it was like to be human as he took this human nature to himself. He was born, as we know, in the stable in Bethlehem, and so he knew what it was like to grow up. He knew what it was like to be weak. He knew what it was like to not know something. He knew what it was like to not be understood by his parents. We have the story in Luke about how he's, he stayed behind to talk with the teachers in the temple and his parents finally realized that he's not there on the way back to Nazareth and they find him. What are you doing here? He understood what it was like to have parents who didn't quite get him. Okay? He knew what it was like to have siblings who also didn't quite get him. Full humanity. As, we, as we'll continue through the Gospel of John, we'll see that he knew the weakness that comes from being tired, from being weary, hungry, fully human. He wasn't just pretending to be human. He wasn't just imagining, or rather, the people didn't just imagine he was human as is taught in Docetism, that he has seemed to be human. But John wants us to really understand something that is so confounding to us that we cannot grasp how one man can have two natures, fully God, fully man. This is the only time 
this has ever happened. He was not, as we, as some te- uh, cults might teach, a man who became God. We have these two natures, rather, united forever. There's not a mixture of sort of the divine and the human. It's not like they both get dumped into a bowl and mixed all up, and you're not sure where one ends and the other one begins because they all become one big cake or something. There is one person, but the best that our forefathers in the faith can understand is that these are forever united from that point on. They're never going to be separated, forever united, without mixture or confusion. And so he does not become sort of a superman as his divinity touches his humanity and makes him extra strong, extra whatever, in other words, he's not like Hercules, okay, who was born of the gods and also of a woman. That's not Jesus. Fully God. Fully man. This is the most significant event in history because we see here that God came to seek and to save sinners. There was a quote that I saw this past week that kind of stuck with me. That was this. It was by a person I've never heard of by the name of Rob Frost. It is more significant that God walked on earth than that man walked on the moon. We've made a big deal about walking on the moon. I was, I was too young to really get that one. Okay? But a big deal was made about walking on the moon. This is far more significant, not just in terms of history, but just in the significance of it, the reality of what took place. When you think about it, it's not all that hard, if you understand physics, to be able to get a man to the moon. But for God to take on flesh and to walk among us, that's only been done once, will only be done once. That is amazing. Tim Keller talks about this when he says that every religion has a prophet who is pointing people to God. And by the way, Jesus did come to point people to God, but he did more. Jesus is the only one who says, I am God, and I am coming to find you. He came to seek and save the lost, precisely because they didn't know they were lost, and they needed to be saved. A Jesus who was unable to say that the Father and I are one. A Jesus who was unable to receive worship from his disciples. A Jesus like that is really a Jesus who was unable to save you because he has the same problem you have. He too would be lost in his sin. He too would be subject just only to the frailties of humanity. He would die for his own sin and not for ours. And so the Jesus of the Bible was eternally God and became fully man for our salvation. Second thing I want us to talk about, that John talks about, is that the Word is the new tabernacle. 
See, the word, uh, the word didn't just come into the world for a quick visit. It was not a pop-in. He didn't come, give a couple of sermons, heal a few people, and decide to just, okay, it's my time has come. I'm out of here. Instead, John says, he dwelt among us. 30 plus years is what, how long he dwelt among us. It has been translated and is probably most properly translated. He tabernacled among us. This word is used one time in this gospel, and it is used four more times in the New Testament, all by the Apostle John, because the other four are in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And all of the other ones in Revelation have this idea of the tabernacle. Okay? John wants his Hellenistic Jewish audience who read the Scriptures in Greek and not in Hebrew He wants them to think tabernacle as he uses this. Because the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt with his people. It began in the Exodus. Out in the wilderness, they had a tent called the Tent of Meeting. And it was the Tent of Meeting because that is where God would meet with Moses. And Joshua got to come along for a ride. The glory of God would fill the Tent of Meeting would fill the tabernacle. John wants them to have this in mind because the fullness of God dwelt in this man. He is the intersection of divinity and humanity. He is the new tabernacle. The old one is about to be destroyed. This will become even more clear as we continue through the Gospel of John. The tabernacle is now Jesus. Jesus, who is not partly God, but fully God, as we see in Colossians 1.19. Jesus will make, uh, John will make clear that Jesus is the new temple that is greater than the old temple. Because this temple is a living temple. This temple brings us into itself, makes us a part of itself so that we become living stones in this brand new living temple. John is going to slowly explain to us, I think slowly anyway, that Jesus is the new and greater Moses who is leading people into a new and greater exodus. Instead of the exodus of slavery to a political entity, he's going to lead us out of slavery to sin. Greater exodus. Also in the fact of the scope and magnitude of this, it's not just going to be one nation that comes out of this slavery, but it's going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every language that are brought out of this slavery to sin. A new and greater exodus is part of what John wants us to grasp in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so as the new tabernacle, Jesus is the new place where we have fellowship with God. Third thing that he wants us to know and understand is that the Word has the glory of a unique Son. The tabernacle, the temple, was the place where God's glory was most evident. That's why for the tabernacle. Only Moses could kind of go in. And then 
when they had the priesthood, only the, the great high priest could go in and but once a year could go into the most holy place. We see that when the temple was made during Solomon's day, when the, <coughs> when the temple was dedicated, the glory so filled the temple that no one could go in. And so the temple goes together with glory. And so we see that John moves quickly from tabernacling into glory. He says that he and the other apostles beheld his glory even though it wasn't obvious. You see, it wasn't like we have in our art little halo over his head. Everywhere he went, that was not there. It's not like some of the other depictions that we see in art where there's a glow that sort of emanates from Jesus that sort of tries to communicate the holiness and glory and majesty that he has, that was not there. You see, as the song we sang says, veiled in flesh. The glory of God that he had known from before the creation of the world was hidden because of his humanity. And yet John is able to say, we beheld it There was something that still became obvious to the disciples as they got to know Jesus. He looked like Clark Kent, but he was more than Superman. He had the glory of the only Son from the Father. And now, John just drops another sort of bomb on us. Father. You find that mentioned a few times in the other Gospels. But John's Gospel is literally overflowing with that word with respect to God. Over 110 times in this Gospel, Jesus or someone else mentions him as the Father. This is a main theme that goes through this book, precisely because the other main theme is Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus has, as the Son of God, He's he's declared to be the only Son, or only begotten, or perhaps better, unique. This word is only found a few times in the New Testament. It appears three times in the Gospel of Luke. But in the Gospel of Luke, it always refers to the only child of somebody. Only begotten. That's their only begotten. It doesn't refer to Jesus at all in Luke's Gospel. If we go to Hebrews, we see that it is used one time. And it is used there to refer to Isaac. The only or unique son of Abraham. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll go, wait a minute. Abraham had other sons, didn't he? And the point being that he was the unique, the only son of promise. He was the one through whom the covenant was going to go through. He was the one who was going to receive all the covenant promises. It was through him that the seed was going to come, that the seed of the woman eventually would come. And so while he had siblings, he is called in Hebrews the unique 
one, the unique son. And so when John uses it here, we should understand this not in sort of a crass way, as um, the Mormons use it. I was on their website today, and they talk about the literal son of God. And what I think they mean is that he was literally begotten, as though he had a mother of some sort, to which I would say, well, who would that be? Mary is not the mother of God in that sense, because he has existed in all eternity, so Mary couldn't be his mother in that sense. This points rather to his uniqueness, that he is the one who has always been begotten. He has eternally existed as son to the Father. In other words, the Father has always been Father, and the Son has always been Son. Okay? Me. I haven't always been a father. I've always been a son. But I've, n- I've not always been a father. I didn't become one until I had Jaden. God the Father has always had God the Son. That's, what, that's their identity. That's who they are. That's essentially what we see them calling one another in the Scriptures. Father, and son. Jesus is the son by nature, and therefore he is unique. As the son, he reveals the father to us, and John continues to talk a little bit more about that glory. What does it mean that he is the glory of the unique son of God? He says that he is full of grace and truth. This is part of his glory. We're going to spend more time talking about these things. I don't want to go on too long tonight, but that idea of grace is sometimes used as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, and that's a good way of putting it. It gets to that idea of unmerited favor. The the root has this idea of joy, of something that brings joy and gladness, and it's used in the Scriptures particularly to point to a joy and gladness that's undeserved. And so grace is receiving the good things that you don't deserve, but that Christ has earned for us. And we all know what truth is, right? He is full of grace and truth. We might even say with John Calvin that he is overflowing with grace and truth. He is like a fountain of grace and truth. And so if we want grace and truth, we must go to that fountain and that fountain only. There's no one else to whom we can go to receive grace and truth. We must go to Him. He's unique in this respect among many others. This is, in a sense, an allusion to Exodus 34. For when God reveals His name to Moses, we might remember that, Moses says he wants to see God. And God wisely says, you can't see me. I'll let you see my hind parts, whatever that means. And so Moses kind of hides in the cleft of a rock God begins to come near, and God covers his eyes so he cannot see, but what he does is he proclaims his name. And essentially what it boils down to is that he is full of grace and truth. 
like father, like son, full of grace, full of truth. The one to whom we must go by faith. So why did the word come into the world? He came as a man by taking a human nature to himself, not just a body. And this changes everything. Because as Augustine says, it is by taking flesh that he will destroy the works of the flesh. It is by dying that he will slay death. Jesus, in doing so, is going to begin a new exodus. And Jesus, in so doing, is the new tabernacle where we meet with God to find grace and truth. And so we must believe in this Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own imaginations, but this Jesus that the Scriptures declare if we are to get the benefits of this Jesus. You see, a fake Jesus will not be able to give you grace and truth. He will keep you bound up in lies and condemnation. And so I beg you, to worship the Word who was God and who became flesh. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we get lost with the cute little baby in the strange place. And I'm thankful that there is so much more than a sentimental story that's going on. There is a monumental shift in the fabric of of the world because your son became man. We thank you that he did this for it was not just to make you known but also to save sinners like us. To give us the truth we need because we have exchanged the truth for a lie and we don't even know what the truth is anymore. Because we in our sin Desperately need grace. We need forgiveness. But we also need to be changed. And so thank you for sending one, your Son, who was full of grace and truth for us. Help us to come to a deeper understanding of that. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.